Faith matters. Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to The Voice of Islam, where we bring you Faith Matters, a program devoted to taking questions on a variety of contemporary and religious issues, where you, our listeners, set the agenda by the questions you ask. You can send in your questions at faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And if you have Sky Digital, this program is also available for viewing on Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, channel 787. Alternatively, you can open it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, put in the words MTA Online 1, Faith Matters, the name of the program, and the question you're after. And if you don't find the answer right there, you know what to do. Email us on The Voice of Islam on Faith Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And with that, it's my pleasure to welcome back to Faith Matters to very respected scholars of the Amdiya Muslim community and regular panelists on Faith Matters. Assalamu alaikum, gentlemen. Welcome to Faith Matters. Just in terms of a brief introduction for our viewers' benefit, to my right, of course, is Molana Abdul Ghani Jahangir Khan Sahib, who's a senior missionary here in the UK and also head of the French desk. And to his right, of course, is Dr. Zaid Ahmed Khan Sahib, who's president of the Kazar Board, the uh, board looking after issues of jurisprudence. Gentlemen, um, welcome to Faith Matters, and we're going to travel to India for our first question, which comes from um, Edward Jack. Uh, thank you very much for your question. He's not a Muslim himself. He's actually Catholic, um, but he has got friends within the Muslim community and indeed the Amdiya Muslim community. And his question relates, um, and he's asking a question relating to a practice within Catholicism and Christianity more generally about the issue of baptism in Christianity. And he's saying from an Islamic perspective, Jahangir Saab, was Hazrat Isa al-Islam, as we know him, Jesus, Prophet Jesus, peace be upon him, was he ever baptized? And did Jesus agree to this? There were, of course, reports that uh, mentioned the baptism of Jesus in the um, New Testament as it stands today. And this wouldn't have been something you know, strange at all, because ritual baths were very much part and parcel of Judaism at the time, even today, but mostly then. Uh, so I don't think that, you know, would have uh, appeared, uh, you know, bizarre in any, in any way at all. But we, we do find this tradition in uh, Islam as well. When somebody um, accepts Islam, they're asked to take a full bath. So it's not a public affair as uh, you know, the, sometimes it is in other religions. And in this particular case, the baptism seems to have taken place in front of people. Therefore, it b wouldn't have been a full-bodied one, perhaps, uh, for the sake of privacy. But uh, in Islam, it's a full bath which has to be taken. It's, not, it's like a fresh start. So it's, it's symbolically washing oneself of one's previous life and entering into a new life of cleanliness, of spiritual purity. Mm -hmm. And this is the, the, the <coughs> idea behind it, so we should view it in that sense, I, I believe. Just before we move on from the question, uh, the, the symbolism element that you picked up on it, I think it's right to say that every faith has it. You have it in Hinduism, indeed, as you were answering the question. I was thinking before you perform prayer, for example, in Islam, you perform the ablution, you're cleansing yourself yes. physically as well as spiritually, and that's something we find in all faiths. Yes, we do. Um, we find that uh, cleanliness goes, as we say, cleanliness is next to godliness. It's very much the case in every religion where we, f we find that uh, water has a, a role to play, but also water is like the thing which comes down from heaven. It's life-giving. So it's, uh, it's a reflection of God's revelation as well, and there is that symbolism there in many faiths, and in particular in Islam. 
But one thing which is interesting, which I've noted in my study of different religions, mm -hmm. it's that in the actual rituals of religions around the world, we always find fire part and parcel of that ritual, whether it's in the form of uh, you know, open fires or closed fires or candles or lamps. Somehow the fire finds its way into the ritual. And of course fire represents light and light is, uh, is symbolic for God and godly divine light. But in Islam, and Islam stands out in that respect, there was never fire used in any of our rituals. <coughs> and the, the uh, perhaps message being given there is that fire is like you know that double-edged sword really, isn't it? It might represent light on the one hand, but it's also got its destructiveness to it as well. And it also is representative and symbolic of, of hell. Mm. So Islam has absolutely nothing to do with that. And of course, Muslims have always used fire for lighting purposes, but never ever in their rituals. So this is one th way that uh, you know, Islam stands out from mm -hmm. the others. And yeah. cooking purposes. And suppose, cooking yeah. purposes as well. <laughs> Unless yes. people like cold food, but yes. I'm, I'm sure sushi. that's not the case. <laughs> that could indeed be true. Yeah. But, but I think it should be pointed out that not all Christian denominations actually have baptism mm -hmm. as their sacrament or, or right of admission. The Quakers, the Salvation Army, they do not uh, agree to the baptism. Uh, but as Jahangir Saab has said, that this is a symbolic rebirth mm -hmm. of a person. Uh, and very much so in Judaism, as Jahangir Saab has again ex explained, that it was uh, the mikveh through a stream, living stream, they call it, uh, that the bath would be taken. Um, and, and water being the, the, something that denotes life as, as such. So in, in that respect, and we know that uh, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And the scriptures tell us that uh, Jesus actually approached John for the baptism, but John wanted Jesus to baptize him. But uh, he, Jesus convinced him to baptize uh, uh, Jesus. So John did baptize Jesus at that time. Gentlemen, my thanks also to our questioner, Edward Jack from India, for your question. If there are any comments or thoughts, Edward, that you have on what you've heard today, please do email us on faithmatters at mta.tv. Our next question comes from Tamara Rodney, who is a Muslim now who converted from Christianity. Um, one of recent things Tamara has come across in reading some literature recently is that she read somewhere that there are 6,666 verses quoted in the Holy Quran, Dr. Zaid and coming from Christianity, we were talking about symbolism a few moments ago, the, the number 666 in particular is something that's associated with that, and it's found, I believe, in the Old Testament as well, about the, it's the actual sign of the beast, and some denominations indeed relate it to the Antichrist. That worried her, obviously, as someone who comes from a Christian tradition who converted to Islam. And she's asking, I suppose, number one, is that indeed correct as a premise? And secondly, is there anything to be made of that? Um, and what can we, or certainly the two of you say, to put Tamara's sort of mind to rest? Well, the number of verses in the Holy Quran has not always been agreed to be this number. There are other numbers that are pointed out from so from that angle, it may need to be reassessed and see where the numbers are. But that is perhaps irrelevant as such, as far as symbolism is, is concerned in, in this respect. Because uh, in Islam, we do not give any credence to the fact 
that there is symbolism of these, of these numbers with regard to the Antichrist or with Satan or with Iblis as such. So from that angle, we do not give it any credence, we do not give it any importance, and we do not believe that there is any link between the two, of course. The Holy Quran is the essence, is the word of God Almighty himself, remains unabridged, unchanged of all the Holy Scriptures. From that angle, it is promised God's protection as far as the actual text is concerned and also as, as, as far as its message is concerned. So that is important for us that it has God's protection despite there being anything out there which may cause it harm. So in that respect, we do not give any uh, importance to the numbers that have been quoted out there. Taking on board what Dr. Saab has said, from an Islamic perspective, there's no basis to it. But I think Tamara also is concerned that in talking with, she's someone, as I said, converted from Christianity, that Christian uh, sort of in discussions and debates, that's maybe a finger that's pointed in her direction. Yes, well, first of all, the number 6,666 is not the number 666. No, 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 yeah, I mean, it's... Out yeah, yeah, well, there's 6,000 extra. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not the same number, first of yeah. all. So, I mean, I don't know why she should, uh, you know, be worried, worried about this much. in that case. But, of course, people will see things where they're not really there. Yeah. Uh, but as uh, Dr. Sabat said, I think we, we need to also specify that when we say that uh, it's, we're not always agreed on the, the actual number of verses, it doesn't mean that some Muslims have taken out some verses and some have added some in. It only means that some verses are taken to, by some to be, uh, for any particular verse, for example, a, lo a longish verse, mm -hmm. uh, would be taken as one verse by some and would be taken as two verses by others. So there would be a discrepancy of one. Now, if two or three verses like this occur in the same chapter, there could be a discrepancy of up to three, you know. Um, but uh, usually what is said is that there were 6,348 verses. By whatever count, you can't reach 6,666. That's not the case anyway. So wherever she got this figure from, it must be a, a typo. And it's not, um, it it's not actually the, uh, you know, the, and any, I mean, anyone can go and get any copy of the Holy Quran that they want. And, and they can just add up all the verses in there and see for themselves, you know, to, to, if it comes to that. Uh, so I think tomorrow I could actually tell them to do that. Um, if they think that that's what it is, then um, you know they can just go and do the count, and hopefully they're good at math, and that they'll arrive at the correct figure, <laughs> inshallah. Gentlemen, thank you very much, and my thanks also to Tamara for your question. And as both Dr. Zahid Saab and Jahangir Saab have said, Tamara, again, these, you know, and <laughs> I think the most important point to emphasise once again is that there's a 6,000 difference between the two, even if you were forgetting everything else to take the two things as being factually correct, but as um, both our uh, panelists have s said already is that the actual number of verses is something in the Holy Quran is something to perhaps be looked at again. But our thanks to your question and please do write in with any other questions or comments you have. Um, before we move on to our next question from Muhammad Yusuf, rather I just wanted to quickly acknowledge the um, comment that we've had in from Mamoon Rashid Sahib from India. Assalamu alaikum Mamoon Sahib. He was um, Reflecting back on a previous question we'd taken on uh, a miracle which was revealed during the time of uh, the promised Messiah and he's given his thoughts on that in comments and uh, all I wanted to just say is briefly acknowledge we have received those and uh, thank you for your comment. Moving on to our next question if I may which comes from Muhammad Yusuf Radha Sahib from um, Hari Bari Gam, Tral in Kashmir, India. Um, 
he's extending a warm assalamu alaikum to all um jazakumullah for that brother sahib he's um again this is something we've dealt with on previous programs in different ways dr zaid sab about if where religion emanates from and it's the amdiya muslim community has always said this indeed islam and the holy prophet of islam always emphasized peace be upon him that islam emanates and all religions at their essence and base were true and he's asking if every religion is god why do all of them and he's referring to people of all faiths claim a monopoly on truth and also implicitly mean that god's only happy with them so and he says that in some instances muslims seem to have crossed the limit and are absolutely adamant that the only righteous people or the only god-fearing people indeed the only people of truth in terms of their following are muslims and god is only theirs and the rest count for very little well, if when, anything indeed when when we look at the holy quran that is not the position that the holy quran describes to us so muslims if they are claiming monopoly over god or over religion or over salvation as to who will be rewarded by allah in the life to come then they do not interpret the verses of the holy quran in the correct manner because when you look at the holy quran the holy quran describes very clearly as to who will be blessed by allah in the life hereafter and that is not limited to muslims by any means at all it is people who do who believe in allah and who do good works mm. and then the description is widened that they may be christians or they may be jews or they may be sabians so therefore looking at the verses of the holy quran we are very sure that the monopoly is not to be held by one religion by any means at all and 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 that is very specific so when we look at that we realize that the holy quran's message as you have said that the source of guidance is of course the original source is all, all always one it is allah the almighty who is the actual source of guidance who has through his prophets over the years brought mankind towards guidance and that guidance may have been limited to certain spheres with regard to previous prophets but which has been made universal as far as the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam is concerned however it does not disregard completely the teachings of previous prophets and therefore those people who believe in god almighty and that is the crux of the matter that belief in allah is of vital importance belief in allah and do good works according to their own limited capacities and maybe limited knowledge that was given to them at that time then they should not fear allah that he will reward them in the hereafter and they, therefore they will be blessed in that respect so as far as islam is concerned it is a very universal religion in that respect but also it accepts that by doing good works and believing in allah you will attain salvation so that is the beauty of islam perhaps other religions will not allow that degree of flexibility and universality of salvation in that respect we know that uh, christians have to have belief in jesus as the son of god and his resurrection to be able to have salvation in the hereafter whereas islam when you look at the teaching of islam as opposed to that it is a very much more encompassing and uniting factor that all people all humanity can attain salvation through these channels so god is not only limited for the muslims but it is a it is a common god 
which is out there for all of humanity to, to link on to, to have an association with him, and then to abide by the rules and regulations that he has sent down to mankind over the years. And that is what we believe in Islam to be the true, true path. For that, Dr. Saab, very comprehensive answer. Just before we move on, um, Jahangir Saab, just on this, if we look at religion in terms of, first of all, its principles, you, the, the essence of God, if you like, is prevalent in faith, the essence of prayer, holy books, and then in terms of what you're told, you know, you could talk about love, compassion, humanity, righteousness. These are all things we find embedded in, in faith in its true common, sense. Common themes. Absolutely. And, yeah, you know, if someone else was sort of giving these kind of instructions, you know, there'd be variations, but they're merely different roads and routes we follow. They are. And also, we, have to, we mustn't forget that, you know, sometimes these uh, misconceptions among Muslims are based on Quranic verses, which they, which they don't interpret correctly. When Allah says, for example, inna dina inda al-Islam, that, the, that it seems to be the only religion in the eyes of Allah is Islam. It is correct, of course, but what is Islam? When Allah himself says that those who are, whether they're Christian or Jewish or Sabians, as uh, Dr. Sab has just pointed out, um, the, the, very, you know, the, the, the nitty-gritty of it, really, is they should believe in God and the last day, and they should do good works, and that's it. So if they're doing that, then they're, they're Muslim. Because Muslim is the one, the meaning of Islam is to submit to God wholly and to, to, to do peace on earth, to make peace with people. That's what a Muslim is. So if there's anybody who's, who fits that, that description, then they are Muslims. And this is why Allah says in the Quran as well, that He it is who has called you Muslim and you were called Muslim before as well. Mm -hmm. you know? And uh, we see, for example, in some of the older texts of the, the Bible, the, the New, New Testament I mean, which are in Aramaic, when we see Jesus sending out, peace be upon him, sending out his disciples to go and conv convert people, the word he uses there is a word which comes from sh uh, shlama in Aramaic, which means, to, as in, as in, as in, 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 in Arabic, aslama, mm. which means, you know, make them, make them become Muslim. Mm. This is the meaning of to convert, to make them submit to God and to make them become peaceful. Mm. You know, to the, and that's what the, what the translation is, or, you know, it's always used as convert. But actually the meaning is exactly the same as in Arabic here. So we, we mustn't limit that to only Muslims per se, the ones who call themselves Muslims today. I mean, if we went around telling people that we are the peacemakers, people would like, they'd love that. But when they hear Muslim, they don't realize it's actually the same thing. But even Muslims don't realize that. They don't realize that they should be peacemakers. That's what they're supposed to be. And Muslim is not just a label that separates them from people. On the contrary, it opens them up to the other people, if anything. So we need to, you know, I mean, Muslims need to work on that a little bit and remember who they are, where they're coming from, and realize that if there are other people out there who do not profess Islam as they do, but who believe in God and who fear God and fear the reckoning and then do good to others, then they're, they're, that's Islam. They're, they're actually practicing a form of Islam. And there's nothing wrong with that. You see, Allah... Uh, tells uh, the, the people of the book, any, any uh, religion that's received a book from God, he tells them, the O people of the book, let's come to a word, you know, equal between us and you. What is it? He doesn't say, all of you come and become Muslim. He says that we, that we only pray to, to Allah and we associate nobody with him. But if they turn away, then say, bear witness that we at least are Muslims. We submit and we make peace. If you don't want to do it, fair enough. But here's the offer, you know, that we have a common God and we are going to make peace. 
So this is it. You know, we're not going to associate anything with him. That's all. That's the basic definition of Islam, which Allah requires from everybody, whether they are in Islam as such or outside of Islam. That's what He requires of them. Human nature and righteousness prevails. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, thank you very much for that. And uh, our thanks also to our questioner for uh, putting that. Um, we're going to move to Germany for our next question, which comes from uh, Masood Rashid Sahib. Um, quite a sort of deep philosophical discussion you've been having, Masood Saab, generally about life and death and everything in between. And his question's just that, uh, Dr. Zaid Saab. He, after having this discussion, he's now, <laughs> this is a kind of question, I think, not just one program, but several series we could devote to. But uh, I'll ask you, as ever, to show brevity in your answers, um, which is always appreciated and uh, you always adhere to. But um, he's asking, why is there life? Why is there death? And why are we created? In ten words. Yes, to do anything in between. So, uh, three short questions. But over to you, Doctor Zaitsev. Well, I suppose we could start off with the, a deep discussion of what life is, but Absolutely. I think that the might take a meaning of life and, and so on. But we are created as the creation of Allah. Allah has created everything, and that, therefore He has created man as the most excellent of beings in that respect. So this is life and he has created us that we worship our creator. This again we find from the, from the Holy Quran. But from, if we consider death as well, then what we have to understand is if you consider it from a scientific point of view actually, any matter that is present will decay and will die. So this is a scientific principle which our lives also have to adhere to. That if we are created and we are matter which we are, then certainly we will decay to that degree and the time that there is between life and death is something that is governed by many factors as such. So death has to be within those boundaries as such. But Allah the Almighty has promised us that our life as such is eternal, that matter, although matter may decay and die, but the spiritual sense, our soul will continue to live. And Jahangir Sahib actually discussed the subject of the soul in another program. But that is something that we also uh, are aware of because the Holy Quran, the word of Allah actually gives us proof of that, that the soul will continue to exist because the life hereafter is something that is eternal and does not end and does not consist of matter as such. So we have to understand life and death from those two perspectives. But what do we do in between? That is for Allah to decide. And that there will be a period when the Day of Judgment perhaps will not have taken place, but a transformation certainly of the soul will continue in that period called the Barzakh period. And therefore the transformation and the rebirth of the soul in another dimension will take place and that will be the life hereafter that we will exist in. What can I say? That was incredibly well summarised. It's a question everyone asks themselves, but one thing which I suppose just to add to what uh, Dr. Zaid Saab is that religion does provide an answer to this. It does provide an answer. I mean, people want to know why they're here. Yeah. Allah mm. tells uh, man, mankind that, they, that he's made them uh, in a way that they recognize him, they know him, and they try to become like him. They reflect him in their persons. When he says he created man of clay, one of the meanings, the spiritual meanings of that is that man has a very soft nature and can take on the imprint of his environment, but equally can take on the imprint of God. And he can become, you know, in the image of God if, if, he, if he, you know, 
uh, follows what God says tells it and does what, does what God tells him to do. So he has to live his life righteously and try to imbibe the attributes of God in himself. That's what's going to happen between the moment of life and death. But as uh, Dr. Sabah said, after that death, there's another rebirth. And there's probably a very long period which is going to go between death and that. Mm -hmm. And Allah, only Allah knows what's going to happen in, in the interim. But uh, Allah has created because, created because he's a creator. It's his nature, that's how he is, and he wants to be known, and so therefore we're here. Jazakumullah, gentlemen. Life is a wonderful thing and with amples of opportunity for all. And uh, Masood Saab, I hope the wise words of our panelists will, you'll take back in your continuing discussions, I'm sure, uh, with your friends and colleagues. But Jazakumullah for your question. And we're going to stay in Germany for our next question, a question which comes from Samina Shaheen Sahiba. Um, it's interesting. They seem to be having a lot of philosophical and life discussions in Germany at the moment. Um, but her question relates to success in life. And she sort of relates that some believe life is all about taking risks and chances. Whereas, and that leads to success, Dr. Zaitsar, whereas others believe that careful planning leads to success. Is there an Islamic teaching on this? Well, we're Going back to Allah the Almighty, the Creator again, it, it is said that Allah is the best of planners. So in that respect, obviously, things that are planned are executed in a better fashion, perhaps. And therefore, we should always make sure that we are planning whatever we are doing. And that encroaches on all aspects of life, doesn't it? Whether it be financial, educational, religious, or whatever. It is better to be well prepared, well planned, well thought through, so that the actual uh, putting into practice of that is going to go along those lines as such. The risk taking can be very risky as, as, as it is. You know, we have seen that in the financial institutions that risk takers have suffered to a great, de great deal and great degree. So perhaps risk taking is something that we should try to stay clear of. But the other thing that Islam tells us is that Allah, Allah says that you should take the middle way. So it goes, you should not be extreme in either aspect. So you should be uh, in moderation. You should carry out your life and your whatever you're doing in that respect. So taking both of those into account, it is better that one is planned, one is well thought through, and also at the same time, one does not take unnecessary risks that may, which may be harmful or deleterious to whatever you're trying to do. So as a Muslim, you should always plan well, and that is the best for us in the future. I suppose there's a question that there's always measured risk in everything we do and if we just end up doing planning and <laughs> there'll be no action. So, uh, yes. uh, <laughs> but I think uh, what Allah says also is um, to take up on what uh, Dr. Sab just said here, it's that uh, we, we should take the middle way and the middle way is a way where you can actually do a lot of good mm -hmm. because going to extremes mm -hmm. means that uh, it, it becomes difficult for the person to actually you know, look after others as well. Mm -hmm. and, and this is why Allah says, وَلِكُلِّنْ وِجْهَةٌ هُوَ مُوَلِّيهَا فَاسْتَبِقُ الْخَيْرَاتِ This is in the whole Qur'an. Allah says that everyone has a goal that dominates him, so vie with one another in good deeds. So Allah says, be careful, I'm going to gather you all together again, and you'll have to answer to me. So you should, you know, if you want to succeed in life, then you should vie with one another in doing these good deeds. And the best way to do that is to stay on the middle path. On the middle path, there are a lot of opportunities to do good deeds of this, of this type. As ever, gentlemen, Jazakumullah. My thanks also to Samina Shaheen Saiba uh, for your question. 
Um, we're going to travel to the USA for our next question, which comes from Mahmoud Ahmed Sahib. Assalamu alaikum, Mahmoud Sahib, and Jazakumullah for your kind comments about faith matters. Um, he's asking um, a question about Islamic teachings again, um, but in terms of preservation. And he's asking this question particularly in the context of preserving historical sites, buildings. Um, and I suppose there's this general battle which happens across the world. And perhaps in, the, if you like, the developed world, it is now more, there's greater protection afforded to many uh, historic sites. You know, we, here in the UK, for example, listed buildings is quite commonplace to find. And generally, the world is now awakening that there is a responsibility on all of us, no matter where in the world, to actually preserve human history as well. Um, Unfortunately, there's those who perhaps, and the Taliban's destruction mm. of the giant Buddhas in mm. Afghanistan mm. were a very, you know, poor example of how, um, you know, people who interpret, taking up your view, extremity in faith, mm. um, can actually destroy history and culture altogether. But, Jang Yitzhak, is there an Islamic perspective on this? Well, you see, there were, there were different perspectives. One um, kind of um, a veiled um, injunction of, of Allah to preserve historic sites is when he says to, to the Muslims, go in the earth, travel the earth, and see what was the end of those who rejected their messengers. Mm. Now, if we're going to destroy those ruins, they won't be there for anybody to see. So obviously they need to be preserved so that people can actually go out and draw some lessons from them. Um, but as far as pres preserving buildings as such is concerned, we find that uh, Islam has a, a rather practical approach. I think Islam's tendency is to preserve as much as is possible, but in, in view of human need, the living have a greater right than the dead. They had their building, they used it, they're no longer here. Now, if, if, if people who are alive today need that more than they do, it might need to be demolished to make way for a better building. And this has been forever done within Islam itself. You know, mosques have been knocked down and rebuilt bigger and they've been, you know, added on to. Some portions have been knocked down, some have been kept. In, for example, these days there's massive work going on being undertaken in the, uh, the precinct of the Kaaba itself, and only a small portion of the old, old uh, building around the Kaaba is being preserved as a memento, but the rest is being modernized, you know, on a scale, you know, never seen before, mm. you know, hitherto. But uh, uh, usually, this is you know the only the only area where you'll find that Islam will actually sometimes I mean not Islam as such but Muslims they'll decide the rulers they'll decide that they have to knock down a building because they need to make way for a hospital or they need to make way for something else which is of greater benefit to the living. There is on record, of course, uh, one ruler of Egypt, a, a, a Muslim, who actually brought a whole team of people trying to destroy the pyramids, but they had to give up because it was just too uh, much of a monstrous <laughs> task. So thank God he never did yeah. manage to do it. I think that uh, it, would be, it would be a very pitiful thing indeed, as you said uh, regarding the statues of Bamiyan. All those centuries under Muslim rule, nobody touched them. They left them as they were, as they did in most of, uh, most of India as well and mm. uh, other places. But uh, you know, if these things had to be destroyed, then there wouldn't be much left to, to enjoy anymore, would there? No, indeed, uh, yeah. very true. I think, I mean, to aspects just to pick up on. Jazakumullah for that as well. I, first of all, Dr. Zaid Saab, on, uh, with an Islamic context specifically, even at times, because there is this, uh, uh, the wrong perception exists sometimes of Islam being a faith of aggression and 
control over all lives and destruction upon governance. And as has already been said by Jangir Saab in Afghanistan, historically, uh, sites were protected until extremists perhaps emerged. But also within this specific injunctions as well, that even at times of aggression or war, mm. that mm. other places of worship, for example, and True. Christians and uh, uh, churches and synagogues, should be specifically protected and not raised to the ground mm. just because there's a Muslim governance or Islamic governance. Absolutely very true. Um, the Holy Prophet وسلم, uh, during his time gave very specific instructions. You know, they were well documented and the Muslims knew about these, that when they were out waging war, defensive wars, then these had to be protected. Obviously life had to be protected as far as then trees would have to be protected monasteries and monasteries had to be protected so houses of worship had to be protected and no damage was to be undertaken on, on those so that is very clear that this is the teaching of Islam this is what was practiced by the Holy Prophet and by the fact that in recent years we have seen that Muslims have actually contravened those uh, laws uh, we find that that is not Islam and that has to be made very clear to Muslims as well as the other, other people that Islam and we go back to the pristine teachings of the Holy Prophet ﷺ, we find that preservation of these buildings he made it obligatory actually on, on Muslims that it is your responsibility even if you see that somebody else is coming to destroy other places of worship and there is no, no one there to protect them then it becomes your responsibility to stand in the way and to make sure that they are protected so this is what our responsibility is. History actually, historical sites can be very uh, thought-provoking and can give lessons to mankind. Jahangir Sahib has rightly quoted from the Holy Quran that these can be lessons for mankind. When they look back at the historical sites, they get an idea of what civilizations passed through and they get an idea of what those civilizations lived for. And if they were, uh, if they were actually people who were uh, against the, the laws of Allah, what was the outcome of those people? So it brings us back to Allah the Almighty, and therefore protection of these sites is an important obligation on Muslims in that respect. There was one point, if I may, uh, on the Holy Prophet ﷺ destroying idols in the Kaaba and something related to that. You see, people, and especially Muslims today, misguidedly, unfortunately, think that because the Prophet Muhammad actually destroyed the idols, the 360 idols in the Kaaba uh, itself, the building of the Kaaba, therefore that's the, 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 the God-given duty of Muslims to do anywhere they go. But actually, the Holy Prophet as you both have pointed out, um, used to ask that the centers of worship of, of other faiths should be protected, they should be given full immunity against any kind of disturbance at all. And we have to remember that he only des uh, decided to have idols broken and destroyed where they, were had, where they had been set in places of worship that had been dedicated for the one mm -hmm. true God and had been taken over by idol worshippers later on. Mm -hmm. So it was only fair to rid those places of those idols when they were returned to their rightful owners. But as for the temples dedicated from day one to these idols, they would not be touched. Now there is a, 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 a case, for example, in India which is brought up very often by Hindus. Uh, it's the temple of Somnath. They say that when the Muslims arrived in India, they destroyed our beautiful temple of Somnath, which is a very large and beautiful, uh, beautifully decorated temple. But actually, that temple was, had become a center of intrigue, plots and treachery 
against the ruling um, force in India. And it, uh, as such, it had forfeited its right uh, uh, you know, to be a, a, a place, place of worship. worship. Mm -hmm. it, wa it was no longer so. And this is why we can't ever condemn any government, even today, even a Muslim government. Mm. If, the, if any mosque, for example, becomes a center of intrigue, that they wish to demolish that mosque, they have every right to do so. If they find that that's the way to, you know, to go about it and to end these intrigues and to end the, the strife and the unrest in the country which is being born out of these, this mosque, then they have every right to do so. But uh, of course, they have to be very careful. They have to think twice before mm -hmm. destroying a place of worship. They have to be very sure. But this is one case which illustrates the, 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 pra the practical nature of Islam. If a place of worship, to, to recap here, is dedicated to idols and it steers clear from any kind of intrigue, then it will be safe from, from Muslims' interference. However, if it has become a center of intrigue and of plots and of uh, uh, disturbance in the country, then it might lose that right and it might also be demolished. But it will not be demolished because it contains idols. Mm -hmm. That is not the actual factor. And I explained the other point that if it had been dedicated to God, then it will be cleansed of those idols later on. So Muslims must steer very clear of uh, you know, confusing these two issues together. Gentlemen, I'm going to take one sort of last question for this program, uh, which comes from uh, Javeria Munir from Canada. And this relates to, according to Islamic teachings, does society have an obligation to protect privacy as a basic individual right? Dr. Zaid Saab. Yes, certainly it does. Islam actually commands in the Holy Quran between spouses as well, you know, that you are a garment, you're a garment for each other. So even those people who are very closely linked to each other in marriage are supposed to keep under control, under wraps, anything that is private between them and not to bring it out into the public eye so that there may be any harmful effects from that. So taking that argument further, then certainly if there are things which are done in private, then they should always be kept in private and make sure that this is not brought out in the public opinion, public eye, so that it forms a form of embarrassment or whatever it is. So this does form Islamic teaching that you should always make sure that you keep things in, 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 parda, in, in secrecy as far as private dealings are concerned. Indeed. And I very appropriately put, and Jangir Saab just as a final point on that, again, in the society we live in, there's this whole thing about public accountability oh, and yes. being in, <clears throat> in the public good, which sometimes also acts as a reason for media intrusion into private lives. What's the Islamic perspective the on Islamic that? The Islamic perspective is very clear on that. It's in the Quran itself. Allah says, first of all, La don't spy on each other. That's the first thing. The second thing is, it says, don't enter the houses of people unless you have asked leave to do so. And if you are told to turn away, then turn away. So you cannot enter a house even without the permission of the owners. So, uh, so this is very clear, that there is no intrusion into private life. And Islam is a very privacy-giving religion anyway. We have the enclosed gardens, you know, for the benefit of the family only. Nobody can see them. No, there aren't any prying eyes. The walls are very high, etc. And uh, we have uh, closed gatherings as well for the ladies in general. And, uh, you know, there was a whole kind of a, an atmosphere of uh, not spying and not finding out what's going on behind, you know, the closed doors and behind the walls. Uh, so th this, is, this is very much part and parcel of, of Islamic culture based on these verses of the Qur'an. And with that, we come to the end of today's programme. 
I would like to thank our panelists and say Jazakumala to them for their very detailed and scholarly answers on an array of questions on a variety of different issues. And if you haven't found the answer to your question, you know what to do. Email us on faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk.